if you've been around here a while, you know that uh, several years ago we were engaged in a ministry that was teaching parenting classes to moms and dads who were seeking to be, uh, they were apart from their children for a variety of reasons, and they were seeking to be reunited with them. And so that ministry was called Families Count. And my wife and I and I think the Acocks and the Jenkins, there may have been some others, I can't remember, but we taught these classes. And one of the one of the prime emphasis in the class in the first week was to try and instill in these moms and dads who are working on reunification with their kids the reality of the gift that they had in their family and how their children and their family that God had, had given them was to be valued. And we used an illustration in the class of two individuals, both of who were in great need of transportation. If you've ever been in that spot before where you didn't have a car and you couldn't go where you pleased and as an adult perhaps you couldn't go to a job interview or get to work, you were dependent upon someone else. And and so we would use this illustration of not having a vehicle and all of a sudden one day someone comes and they give you a car. And they say, look, I, I have this car, I'm not using it, it's yours. It's a free gift. And the car runs great, but it is nothing fancy to look at. It's a older car, rusty, beat up, nothing fancy at all, but it will get you from point A to point B. And one of the individuals who's given this car is, they're greatly thankful. They remember what it was like to not have a vehicle, and so they are just so thankful for this gift that someone has come and just given them a car. And every day when they get in it and they go to drive, they are, they value what they have been given. And because of that, they took, they take good care of it, even though it isn't anything to look at, but they change the oil, they put air in the tires, they care for it because they want it to last as long as possible. But another individual, they get that car and it's just not what they wanted. You know, it's not their dream car. They, they were hoping for something that was going to be new and fancy and pretty to look at and fun to drive. And so for them, it's just like, ah, I can't stand this car. It gets me from point A to point B, but it's not what I wanted. And because they don't value what they've been given and because they don't remember what it was like to not have it, they don't take good care of it. They, they don't do the maintenance that is needed to take good care of the vehicle and make sure that it lasts. And the point of the illustration is you've got same car, same situation, two different people, and the difference in how they treated the gift they had been given was simply how they perceived it and whether or not they realized the value of it and whether or not they remembered what it was like before they had that gift. And so we would talk about that illustration to moms and dads to try and instill in them what a valuable gift their family was and why they should fight for their family. I think about when I was younger, and I say this to almost every young man who I have an opportunity to minister to or to have some relationship with, and if I've not said this to you privately, I'm going to say it to you publicly now because I... I'm not ashamed of this counsel. And this would go for young ladies as well, but I would specifically say this to young men because that's what I relate to. Not that I'm still young, but I once was. Cherish your family, especially if you are granted the good gift of a father. Cherish your dad. And I say that because I remember being a young man at 19 and 20 years old, and I didn't. My dad had always been, some of you have heard me talk about him before, my dad had always been my best friend. We had 
been inseparable growing up, even when I was in high school. I had a couple of guys I liked to hang out with, but for the most part, I just enjoyed doing things with my dad. I was the only child, so I had all of his attention. But when I turned 19 or 20, I got focused on what was ahead. All the things that I was hoping to be able to do and accomplish and seek after. And I didn't have time for my dad anymore. And in one sense, that's what I was supposed to do in terms of moving forward. Not putting off maturity. But in another sense, I, I swung the pendulum so far in just being focused on the things that I wanted to do and building my life that, that I really cut him out. But at 20, what I failed to know, what I could not possibly know, was that I only had five years left with my dad. I only had five years left to spend time with him. I only had five years left to seek his counsel. So I didn't value what I had. I didn't treasure what I had. And because I didn't treasure it and understand, I set it aside. Here's the underlying reality of why I'm sharing these couple of illustrations with you. The underlying reality is that you and I will passionately pursue, we will passionately go after that which we value most. And not only will we passionately pursue and go after what we value most, but we will passionately pursue and go after and defend what we value most. If you really want to know what you treasure, look at that which you spend the most time and energy going after. Find out that thing that angers you the most when it is threatened. And you will have an idea of what your treasure is. We can temporarily change our behavior. You can get other people in your life to temporarily change their behavior by some type of slick motivation or even manipulation, but in order for there to be a steadfast faithfulness to something, the heart must be engaged. Because if your heart is not engaged, then you won't stay after it. Jesus said in Matthew 6, He said, if you can figure out what you really treasure, you'll find your heart. If you can figure out what you treasure most in life, then you will know where your heart is. And the heart is represented of your whole being, what you give yourself to. Today, it has been my prayer and it is my hope that we as a church would treasure God. That we would treasure God who has planned our rescue that we would treasure Jesus who has secured our rescue, and that we would treasure the Spirit that applies that rescue to our life. I don't want any of us, any of us, to take for granted the salvation that we have received or the one that we're being offered if we have not yet received it. And there are many things that would cause us to take it for granted. Dead religion, if we're religious, that's what I was speaking of earlier. If we have some moral aptitude about us that we, we know I should do something godly on a Sunday. I should go somewhere, I should go to church, I should read my Bible some during the week, I should pray. Why? Because that's what good Christian people who live in the South do, right? If your heart is not engaged, you won't remain in that. I don't want us to take for granted this salvation because of sin, because we prefer the darkness to light, because we prefer to be our own God and make our own rules and 
do what we want to do. I, I don't want us to take it for granted because of dullness. Because we simply don't find God that appealing. We're enamored with a lot of things, but God is not one of them. I don't want that for us. I don't want that for anyone here, anyone that calls this church home, anyone that visits, anyone who watches this on replay. I want God to awaken our hearts to have affection for Him. And make no mistake about it, I believe that is exactly what must happen. He must awaken our hearts. But we are responsible to look to Him. We are responsible to answer Him when He calls. We are responsible to respond to conviction. I want us to value who God is and what God has done. Because if we don't value Him and we don't value what He has done, then we will not take care of the salvation we have received. We will never live rightly if we do not first value salvation. So I want to ask you this morning, will you ponder as we go through this text, just a short couple of verses, but filled with reminders of what God has done and who you are in Christ, if indeed you are in Christ. Words that we might just read over very quickly, trying to get through a chapter yet filled with riches and a marvelous understanding of what God has done and who we are. And it is my prayer that God will open our eyes to see this. And He will open our eyes to see our identity in Him. And I want to exhort you this morning to ask, as we walk through this text, as we go through these notes, would you ask yourself, do I treasure this? Is this where my heart is? Do I treasure what God has done and do I treasure who God is? And let that lead you to prayer. If the answer is yes, pray that you would treasure it more and more. If the answer is no, cry out to Him. Repent. If the answer is, I never have, would you come and be saved? Believe upon Christ. Be baptized. So let us look at 1 Peter, beginning in verse 9. He opens up the sentence. He says, but you are. I'm going to stop there. Obviously, he is making a comparison of some kind. He is saying to us, the church... You are not like this. Well, what is this that we're not like? And it comes from verse 8, where we stopped last week. Talking about that there are people who will stumble over Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, but some people will come to that stone and they will trip over Him. They will fall down because of Him. They will disobey the Word as they were destined to do, Peter says. And then he says, but you, you're different. You are not like the ones who stumble over Christ. You are not like the ones who fall down because of Him. You are not like the ones who hear His Word and refuse to obey. You are not the ones that are destined to do so. You are different. And before we go any further, I want to ask you this question. If that is true, if you are different... If you are not the ones who stumble over the stone, why is that the case? What makes you different? And my response is that he tells us in the next verse, once you had not received mercy, but now you have. The answer to why me, if you've ever asked that question? Why did I come to Christ? Why do I know and love God? 
Why am I in the family of faith? The answer is one word. Mercy. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with what is in us. It has everything to do with God and who He is. So in your notes, if you're a note taker, if you're filling in the blanks, because of the mercy of God, the church is, or you are, these things that we're about to read about. And I want to pause there again. And I, I have in parentheses there, I have the church is, and then I have you are. Because I want you to understand that what Peter is talking about, he's addressing to believers, the church. The universal church and a local church. He's addressing it to agape in Pinson and all of us who are believers. But he is addressing it to the individual believers that make up the church as well. So you can read these and understand he is talking about you. If you are in Christ. You are who you are because of his mercy. You are all of these things that Peter's about to tell us. Because of God's mercy. Salvation is not about how you have acted toward God. Salvation is about how God has acted toward you. It is about what He has done. And what you receive. You are the recipient of God's work. And this should remove for us any arrogance toward the world that is lost. I'm not a prophet or someone who believes believes that my gifting is prophetic giftings, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say many of you in this room this week have found yourself angry at the world. Remember, that the difference between you and the world that does not yet know Christ is mercy. It's the only difference. Merciful people can't be arrogant people. Merciful people can't be people who shake their fist at lost people and say, why are you the way you are? Because the only reason that we are godly if we are godly is mercy. It is what God has done for us. So what has God done for us? In mercy, who are you? Listen, some of you young people, you've got your whole life ahead of you. That's that's what your mindset is. And who are you going to become? I saw that over and over again at graduation posts this year. Your future is whatever you decide it will be. I saw that posted. You will become anything that you want to be. I saw that posted. And I'm not, I'm not trying to discourage you out of that. But I am trying to say this to you. Don't make your identity about what you are about to go do. Don't make your identity about this future that you're so excited about walking into. Because I'm going to tell you at some point it is going to disappoint you. At some point, things are not going to work out the way you wanted them to work out or the way that you thought they were going to work out. And if you've made your whole identity about what you're about to do and about what is about to happen for you, when those things don't happen, then you are going to be in a state of disillusionment. And you're going to question it all. So go after the future. Go after what God has laid on your heart to do. But remember, it's not your identity. What you do is not who you are. If you're a believer, who you are is who God says you are. It is what God has done for you. So if you reach your goals or if you don't, you are still who God says you are. Now, some of us, we're not in the state of being young and chasing after the goals of the future. Some of us are in that place where we are disillusioned because the things never happened that we thought would. And we have been torn up by the world. 
by what we have done and by what has been done to us. And I want you to remember this morning that you are not what has happened to you. You are not what you have done. You are who God says you are in Christ. So who does He say you are? Beginning in verse 5, just to throw you a curveball for a moment, He's already told us that we, in His mercy, are the dwelling place of God. That's the first note there. We are the dwelling place of God. I just want to remind us, we looked at this last week, verse 5. You yourselves, as you come to Him in verse 4, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a spiritual house. 1 Corinthians 3 refers to this as the temple. That Old Testament brick-and-mortar stone temple has now become living vessels. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, God dwells in His people. You are the dwelling place of God, which means He is with you in a special way. He is near you in a special way because He dwells in you if you're a believer. As you come to Him, you are being built up as a spiritual house. Be encouraged. The more you come to Christ in worship, the more you open the Word to commune with Him, the more you pray, the more you sing, the more you come to small groups and to corporate gatherings to be with Him, the more you come to worship, the more He is building you up. The more He is building you up into a place in which He will dwell more and more and more fully. Let that excite you about more than anything in your life. That God has chosen you to dwell in you. Don't let something created be more amazing to you than the reality that God has chosen to dwell in you. Let that be your identity. You are the dwelling place of God. You are a people identified by God's call. And I put in parentheses there, together. A people identified together by God's call. A chosen race. In Christ, we are a people identified not by our nationality, not by our skin color, but by this characteristic. God has called us. God has called us together. I think it was Tamara who was praying in the prayer room earlier this morning. She was praying for unity in the church. And she mentioned how we're people who come from different backgrounds and we have different tendencies and different things that we love and different things that we cherish. We may, we may look somewhat different. And if I'm being honest, we wish we looked a little more different. Because the more people understand how naturally different we are, yet see us together, loving and honoring God, they realize that we are not people bound by what the natural world bounds us to. People in the culture who try to group themselves together based on outward, external things, whether it's appearance or backgrounds or traditions or even preferences. But in the church, we're a chosen race. God calls people from all races to be a special race. And that special race is in Christ. It has nothing to do with what we look like. It has everything to do with who He has called us to be. I don't mind that word that was chosen there. Because we need the reminder that there is zero room 
in God's church for prejudice of any kind based on any external factor. And church, if you see that in yourself, kill it by the Spirit. And if you don't see it in yourself, make sure you've searched for it and kill it by the Spirit because there's no room for it. There's no room for partiality in the church. We are a chosen race. And what identifies us together, what brings us together, is that God has called us to Himself. Jesus in John 6, the very dramatic scene in John 6. You've got these crowds of people that are following Jesus. And much like we think today, if a crowd's following them, they must be special. And all these crowds were following Jesus, and His disciples were pretty excited about that. Church growth. We got big crowds coming. And Jesus used the opportunity of these crowds to teach some of His hardest sermons and say some of His most offensive words, as in, you will never see the kingdom unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, which was symbolic of what we must feast on spiritually in order to be saved. But His disciples, those 12 men that He had called, they come to Him and they're like, what are you doing? Everyone's leaving. And He looks at them and He says, are you going to leave too? And He tells them, I've already told you this. No one can come to Me unless it is granted to him by the Father. John 6.65 Some people will leave. They are leaving or they are coming based on God's call. I will admit to you, mercy is hard to understand. God is merciful. Because He's merciful. And sometimes we have to enjoy His mercy before we can really understand it. Sometimes we just have to live in it. Rather than try to grasp it before we live in it. But if we can come to an understanding of how precious this gift of salvation is, I believe we will value it all the more. If we see it as this thing out there that I can go to anytime I want, it's there. When I get ready, I'll go believe. When I get ready, I'll go to Christ. When I get ready, that's what I'll decide to do. If that is how we view salvation, we will always be flipping about it. But if we understand that the only difference is mercy, And that it's not about what we do, but it is about what God does and what He offers and what He calls. And that if we come to Him, we are coming to Him. He has called us and we are receiving and responding to what He has done. Then we will value this gift. And we will see how personal it is. You are not one of the crowd. And He saved the crowd and you're just one of it. He knows you. He has known you. And He has called you. Value that. Treat that as precious. Treasure that. Your identity comes from God's call. Chosen by Him. A chosen race. That should be everything to us. Everything. In mercy, we are the dwelling place of God. We are a people identified by His call. And we are kingly ministers. We are kingly ministers. We are a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood because we have a ministry to the king. He has called us to himself and he hasn't just called us to himself so that we could just buy our time until heaven. 
He hasn't called us to Himself so that we can get our ticket punched for eternity and then we can go live our life the way that we see fit to live it. He's called us for a purpose. And part of that purpose is to be a royal priesthood. We are a minister to the King. We have a special service to God. But not only are we minister to the king, we're a minister from the king. He sends us as ambassadors on the earth to love and serve other people. Understand how thrilling it may sound if you were to be chosen as an ambassador for your company to represent them at some huge gathering or conference or an ambassador to another country. We may look at that and say, oh, that would be awesome. Yet in Christ, we are chosen to be ambassadors of King Jesus to the world. We are chosen to be His representatives on the earth. Revelation chapter 5, we have this picture of heaven. And John unfolds it for us and says that in his revelation, he saw these beings singing a new song. And the song they were singing is to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you, in ransoming them, have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Starting next week, we're going to get into some instructions from Peter where he's going to tell us some hard things about how the church is supposed to live in the world, and it is going to be some things that we are not going to want to hear or do. And I want us to know the foundation of what He is going to tell us is not weakness, but strength. One day, the saints of God will reign with God. One day, we will reign on the earth with Jesus. I agree with what Josh said. I can't remember if it was preaching here or prayer or maybe it was in small group. But he talked about how he believed when when eternity came and the new heaven came down that we would live and we would have work to do. And I totally agree with that. We're not going to be floating in the clouds playing harps. We are going to be in real, physical, resurrected bodies on a new heaven that is descended to the earth, and we are going to have work to do. And I believe part of that work is reigning with Christ. I don't know what that means, and neither do you. But here is the reality. We will, as believers, inherit the earth, and we will reign because we are royal, kingly ministers. And that is not to make us arrogant. It is a reality that tells us your identity comes from God's call. You will reign with Him one day. So in the meantime, serve on His behalf. Just like He did when He was here. We don't look arrogantly at the world and say, serve us because we're going to reign one day. We say, Jesus has said we're going to reign one day. With Him. And for now, we serve you. Because we're His ambassador. We're going to do what He did. In mercy, you are His dwelling place. You are a people identified by God's call. You are kingly ministers. You are a set-apart nation. That's what He calls us, a holy nation. I want to focus on the word holy for a moment. I'm not telling you anything when I say life in this world is confusing. Sin is celebrated and it is promoted. We set aside days and weeks and months to promote and celebrate that which God 
that which is not of God. That is not new. We should not think that is new. That has been the case since the fall. But it's confusing to live in this world because we get angry at the world, yet God tells us that our anger is not going to produce righteousness in anyone. You are not going to anger someone into following God. At the same time, we can't be complicit with the world. We are a holy nation, a set-apart nation, dedicated to Jesus. So I say to us, please be warned. And I say it to all of us, but I, I specifically want to say it to those of you who are younger and in college or getting ready to go to college. Be warned of a gospel that elevates love at the expense of truth. That tells you the only way to be loving is to not be truthful or to not hold strongly to God's Word. Because that is a false dichotomy. At the same time, be warned of focusing more on the behavior of other people than your own. Some of us, we spend all of our energy and our time being angry at a world that's not loving God and we're not spending near enough time focused on how we can love God more. We're the holy nation. We're the people that should be focused on how we become more like Christ rather than be so angry at all the people who aren't like Christ, who we can't control. You are chosen, you are royal, you are holy. For people who don't know Jesus to live unholy lives means they're living into their character because they haven't yet come to know Christ. And we hope and pray and seek and serve that they will. But for a Christian to live an unholy life means we're living in contrast to our nature. We are called to be holy. That is who we are. We're chosen, we're royal, we're holy. And finally, we are God's special possession. Peter says we are a people for His own possession. Look at what it says in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Because once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In a sense, all people belong to God. All people are made in God's image. All people have inherent value because of that. And all people who are inherently valuable in God's image should be treated with respect. But in another sense, you in Christ, are a people that belong to God. You are His people in a special way that is not true of the whole world. God does love all of the world in a general way, but He loves His people in a specific way, in a special way. We are recipients of God's special love. In Christ. This language that Peter is using is taken directly from the Old Testament. And it was words that God used to describe Israel. Exodus chapter 19, I'm going to read you verse 5 and 6. It is said of the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, this is God speaking to them, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, 
for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God tells Israel, you are mine. Why? Mercy. There's places in the Old Testament where he tells Israel, I chose you out of all the nations on the earth, and it is not because of you. It is not because you were stronger people. It was not because you were a greater people. It was because I had mercy on you. That's the only explanation. I bore you, he said, on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And I have done so that you would be my treasured possession among all peoples. Even though the whole earth is mine, I am calling a people, a special people to myself. And what makes them special is that I'm calling them. And they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Peter takes that And he says, church, that's you. That's you. This was pointing to you. Not just to people descended from Abraham, but a people called by God. That he is born on eagle's wings to bring to himself. That we might be chosen, holy, royal, I remember something special about my grandmother, my dad's mom. We called her, as many of you probably do, your grandmother's Nana, Nana Betty. The one thing I remember about her is that any time we were somewhere where I was around people, uh, where we were around people that weren't in our family or whatever, she would go out of her way to take me to whoever those people were and introduce me, and she would always say the same thing. This is my grandson. I, she owned a little restaurant in Centerpoint. Whenever I went in there to eat, she would bring people over to our table, and she would say, I just want you to meet my grandson. This is my grandson. When she was dying of cancer, the last time that I saw her that she was coherent, We were in the hospital. She was in the hospital room. I walked in. There was a doctor and a nurse in there, and she looked, and she couldn't talk. But she looked and mouthed at them, that's my grandson. Of all the people on earth, in Christ, God looks at you and He says, Mine. You're mine. You're not mine because you came to me. You are mine because I called you. Does it matter? It matters in a sense what happens to you in this life, and hurts are very real, and I don't want to overlook those. But what happens to you in this life and what you have done in this life is not what identifies you. Because the God of the universe looks at everyone who is in Christ and He says, Mine. He has called you by name. If He does that for the stars, He does it for you. He calls you by name and He says, You're mine. I wanted you this morning to ponder what He has done for you. I wanted you this morning to ponder who you are in Him. And I want you to ask yourself, do I treasure this? Do I value this? What place does this have in my life? And now I want to ask you to ponder why He has done this. In Isaiah 43, 21, of the people of Israel, He said, They are the people who I have formed for Myself, that they might declare My praise. And I would say if that is true of Israel, it is true of us. That He has formed us and called us to Himself that we might declare His praise. This life truth in your handout comes from verse 9, back in 1 Peter, where he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you, or so that you... So if you write in your Bibles, you could circle that or underline that. 
He's about to tell you why He has done these things for you. Why has He chosen you and called you and made you royal and a holy nation so that you may proclaim His excellencies? If you have a Bible, would you go over to Ephesians 2 for just a moment? God has lifted you up in Christ. He has chosen you. He's made you royal. You are His holy priest so that you can make the glories of your King known. So that you can proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you. And I want you to hear this from Ephesians 2. And we're going to read 10 verses. And if you'll just read them along with me. I'm not going to make a lot of commentary on them. Just one comment. But I want you to let these words wash over you. And I want to ask God to give us special understanding of these words. Father, awaken our hearts to them. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him. That's that royal reigning in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 7. So that, in other words, why has He done all of these things for us? So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look at verse 7 one more time. Church, understand right now, today, and in the ages to come, for everlasting, you are the display of God's immeasurable riches of grace. For all time, you will live as a display of God's graciousness. He has lifted you up that you might lift Him up. He has given you an identity that you might point people to His identity. And you do so first with your whole life. In your notes, you do this with your whole life. Romans 12.1 says, Take your whole life and place it before God as a living sacrifice. You have an identity from Him so you can make Him known with everything. Whatever you do. Whatever your hands find to do, whatever career you end up in, whatever life situation, whatever relationship, whatever your circumstances look like, He has purposed that you would make Him known with your whole life. Spend time pondering, how am I making Christ known? How are people seeing the grace of God because of me? But not just with your whole life, but with the words from your mouth. With the words from your mouth. That's what Peter says back in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are this chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you. Proclaim means tell, declare. That should be the one goal of every Christian because it is the calling of every Christian. And I want to say to you that it is the one all-satisfying thing you will do. If you try to find peace on this earth 
in your career, in how much money you make, in pleasure, in notoriety, in just day-to-day, week-to-week living and fun, you will always find yourself disappointed. The one thing you were made to do in Christ is the one thing that will satisfy you, and that is to make His excellencies known. We declare it with our mouth. Two types of praise that you see people in the Psalms doing. One, we praise Him for what He has done. We praise Him for what He has done. Psalm 73 says, It is good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of His works. Or Psalm 107 that says, I will offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. I will tell of His deeds in songs of joy. We speak it, we talk about it, we sing it. I am grateful for a worship team that leads us in songs that teach our soul about the character and the goodness of God. When we come here to sing, we're singing to God, we're singing to each other. We're singing about what He has done, and also we give praise for who He is. Not just for what He has done, but for who He is. Psalm 79, we your people, the sheep of your pasture, we will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praises. Psalm 116, gracious is the Lord. Do we tell people that? Gracious is God. And righteous. And merciful. One theologian said that praise is the great work of worship. To commemorate God's deeds is a thrilling task. But the pinnacle of devotion is to rejoice in God Himself. We should praise what He has done, but that is not the end of our worship. If we only worship when He's doing things for us, we're going to spend a lot of our life struggling. We worship Him for who He is, and we thank Him for all He does. If we're honest, some of us find it easier to live our faith than speak about our faith. Now, we all struggle to live it. But some of us think, I'll just do good deeds and that's how I'll show my faith. Because it's really scary to think about talking about it. But church, there is no gospel without words. There is no gospel without you speaking. I want to challenge you this morning. And I'm not going to challenge you from a place that I wouldn't challenge myself because I've found myself here many, many times. Are you comfortable saying or talking sometimes about God? and prayer, and church? Because we do live in the South, and people are kind of used to that. My question is, how often do you talk about Jesus? Because the moment you say that name, you have drawn a line in the sand. Many people believe in God, and prayer, and going to a house of worship. How often do we talk about Jesus, the name by which we are saved? I know many times I have found myself more comfortable talking in vague terms than the specific term of Jesus Christ who saved me. And I don't want that to be the case. God has summoned us out of darkness, into His marvelous light. He has done these things for us that we might proclaim His excellencies because He has summoned us out of darkness. This last life truth, I'm giving you two for one this week. Those who know and treasure the privilege of being brought into the light will be the ones who shine brightest to the world. 
the ones who know and treasure the privilege of being brought into the light will be the ones who shine brightest to the world. Isaiah 49, 6, I want to read this to you in closing. God says, is it too light of a thing that you should be my servant? To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Church, don't let it be too light of a thing that He has called us to be His servants. It is a gracious thing. It is a wonderful thing. If God is for you, who can be against you? Because if this is who God says you are, no one can take it from you. And if you know this and you treasure it, truly treasure and value what He has done for you and who you are in Him, you are going to shine. People are going to see it and they're going to hear it. You're not going to have to force it. You have to be bold, but you will love being bold because you treasure Him so much. Sam, you guys can come up. I'm looking forward to this song we're about to sing together because of this one line that always captures me. Your light will shine when all else fades. When everything else in this life dims, the light of Christ shines. And it will shine forever. And if He has called you out of darkness into the light, you become the light. Do you treasure what He has done? Do you treasure who you are in Him? If not, would you run to Him this morning and ask Him to help you? Would you repent of things you may treasure more than Him? Or if you know that you're not in the light, you haven't come to Christ, you may be religious, but you don't treasure Jesus. Today, today, would you come to Him? Chris, you can bring all the lights down. My invitation to you this morning is come and follow Jesus. Believe, repent of your sins, and if you've never been baptized, make the decision to be baptized as a public proclamation of what He has done. If you've been saved and baptized, but you're wandering, come back. He's brought you here this morning intentionally to remind you of who you are in Him and what He has done that you might treasure it. I want to ask Kevin if he would come over. And Rob, would you come? And I want to ask this morning if you would come and ask for miracles. Where do you need God to move? Physically, spiritually, mentally? Would you come this morning and ask Him to do a miracle? And would you expect Him to? I'm going to be standing over here in just a moment. If you want to talk about something going on in your relationship with Christ or where you are, just come stand right beside me and we'll have a conversation. I'll pray with you and we'll talk about it more later. If you want to pray for miracles, for God to move, come and these, these men will pray for you. Or come to these steps and pray. Or pray where you are. Whatever you do, don't be sleepy. Go hard after God. Seek passion for Him. Love one another deeply. This is the call to Christ for us. When everything else fades... His light will shine. Jesus, I ask this morning that You will apply these words to our heart. 
that You would do miracles in this place today. That You would heal people physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. That You would call people out of the darkness. The darkness of sin, the darkness of unbelief, the darkness of believing things about themselves that are not true, of listening to the lies of the enemy, the darkness of depression or fear or anxiety, the darkness of loving the world more than loving you. Would you call us out of the darkness? Would you bring us into your light today? Would you help us to treasure you and what you have done for us? Would you shine into our hearts Would you help us to worship, valuing all that you are and all that you have done in your name? If you are willing and able to stand and worship, please do so. Or if you want to pray, please do so. Respond to God in His Word. Amen.